Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. In Mina Sechkin's debut novel, The Four Humors, Sybil, a Turkish student preparing for med school in the United States, and her American boyfriend, Cooper, are in Istanbul for a summer to help care for Sybil's grandmother. It is a placeholder in their lives, which otherwise rush forward with plans and dreams of a future in a different place. The return to Erdogan's Turkey, a place of uncomfortable tensions and the dramatic tightening of government control over political and human rights, sets the scene for Sybil's quest to understand her evolving relationship to her home country, to her family, to her loved ones, and to her body itself. As Sybil introduces Cooper to Turkey, she finds herself ironically abstracted from the places and people that she once called home. Sybil's quest to understand her feelings of distance and to recenter her notion of family takes a dramatic form in the theory of the bodily humors, the classic understanding of how the fluids and organ functions of our bodies are often at war with one another and that finding balance is necessary for health and well-being. As Sybil visits cultural and historical sites and recounts a history full of both civilization and barbarity, she imagines the ways in which her body and the lineage of bodies before her have failed to find that balance. Sybil's own struggles and her persistent guilt about the death of her father rest atop an explosive family secret. It is a secret that will challenge the nature of Sybil's bloodline and the connective tissues that link her to a place and to a sense of home and family. Told with a humor and wisdom, with a heart full of blood, bile, and color, Four Humors refuses expectations for what an immigrant's journey will look like, sound like, and feel like. Mina Sechkin has made a place for herself in the rich tradition of contemporary literatures that take up the past as both the grand narratives of political history and the local familial stories that give flesh and body to that history. Mina Sechkin completed her MFA at Columbia University, where she received the Felipe de Alba Fellowship and where she also received her bachelor's degree. Her work has been published in Refinery. 29, McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, Electric Literature, The Rumpus, and Elsewhere. She serves as a managing editor of Apogee Journal. Welcome, Mina. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for that introduction. That was was wonderful. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for being here. I'm looking at the cover of this novel, which has to be one of the most sort of beautiful and and stark and and just extraordinary images on a cover that I've seen in in many years it's a it's a half of a face with a a blooming of flowers um coming out of the top of it and I wonder if you if you tell me the story of how that came into being yeah so um this cover the artwork on this cover is actually a piece by 
this Turkish artist, Ekin Sukoc, um, who works in, she lives in Germany, and a lot of her work has to do with collage and um, finding sort of primary sources of women throughout the years in different spaces and putting those together in a way that is often um, cut up and distorted. I have loved her work for a very long time and I had told Catapult about her work and they they reached out to her and went with one of her pieces. Hmm. And when I actually first spoke to Ekin Sukoch, we were amazed at how our work, my written work and her visual artwork um, seems to be using the same tools to tell the same story of of like you expressed so wonderfully say the lineage of bodies before Mm. um a woman uh and how that how the map and the spaces around her both disrupt that body and um allow it to potentially be free yeah I don't think I've ever heard an author describe such a synergy between an artist of a cover work and and their own work. I think that's really amazing. Yeah, it really feels like a translation along genre or an adaptation, right? The way they all, the way so many people um, complain about a movie not being ad- mm-hmm. adapted properly. I actually feel like her artwork is it feels like an adaptation and vice versa. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. I, I, I hope she feels similarly pleased with that, with that connection. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, the four humors of the title, blood, phlegm, bile, and collar become a possible Rosetta stone for Sybil as she attempts to understand her relationship to her body, her family, her language and culture, and to try and come to a balance between those elements of her life, which feel out of sorts. What drew you to this ancient classical philosophy of the bodily humors? And why was it a meaningful way for you to have Sybil consider what is imbalanced in her life? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. The four humors are quite a Rosetta Stone for her. I had first, I had first been drawn to the humors. I actually had read this tiny little blurb in the journal Latham's Quarterly about St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, who was a nun in the 19 in the 1600s, she had started receiving these visions from Christ, but nobody believed her naturally, and they decided she was delusional and too full of passion. Um, <laughs> so they uh, once a month they bloodlet her in this in this stone basin. Gosh, this is what you describe in the yeah. book. It's so terrible. Yeah, and uh, to cure her. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I I mean, that's that's ridiculous, right? But that was the medical, those were genuinely the medical guidelines of the time, perhaps, right? And I immediately became obsessed with the four humors and I needed to learn everything about them. Um, especially because I was so interested in say how much, how much, uh, the moral prescriptions that medicine put on human beings back then. Um, and even today say what constituted health and who had the resources to seek it. Um, and there's a lot in there that say you find out a lot about the 
societal values going on at that time based on how they are treating people or what needs oh, yeah. treatment, right? Mm -hmm. And in terms of, say, women's health and reproductive health, it's was just as it was just as thorny then as it continues to be today, say. Um, I'm thinking of the I, I think this only changed recently, but I believe there were there were a number of conditions that um, that prevented a woman from getting pregnant that were referred to as inhospitable uterus. Yes. Yeah. And there's so much of that, like sprinkled throughout medicine today. So it's mm -hmm. a, um, it seems like we haven't learned much. No, no, we definitely have not learned much. And yeah, the inhospitable womb and the history of, say, um, hysteria mm. is definitely is definitely one that is rooted in actually like comes very much so from the four humors. I understanding um, that your uterus being sick is why you are emotionally not stable. Yeah. And so I was I really that really resonated with me as something that a person, especially a woman, deals with. And um, at the same time in my own life, when I was writing this book, I um, was staying with my with my great grandma, my grandma and my great grandma in Istanbul. And I was there working at a political journal for that summer. And my grandma had just been diagnosed with Parkinson's and my great grandma had Alzheimer's and dementia. She was near a hundred. And, but though we don't really know how old she was. Um, and every night, like every few nights she would, it was a really difficult time uh, because every night, every few nights she would, she would, pee the bed and my grandmother and I would clean her and change the sheets. It it really, really impacted me the way my grandma, even though she was sick too, continued to take care of her mother. Um, and yeah, it, it, it really, it really, the way that familial care continued to reinforce itself again and again, um, the way female caretakers continue to do that work never really commended for it too. Mm. sort of continuing to do it in in quiet and behind closed doors made me feel made me feel like I don't know I wanted to shed light on that exact thing yeah it's a tacit understanding that that caretaking will be done largely by women yeah. and without comment yeah Which and it is... rubbed against like the history of medicine in a very interesting way um, the history of medicine is not, say, known to be a field where there are a lot of women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Down in history. Yeah. So for me, it's Sybil's narrative voice that makes this such a fabulous and riveting novel. Mm -hmm. That first person uh, voice and tone operates with a great deal of distance from the events of Sybil's life as though it were watching from a reserve. Mm -hmm. This mirrors Sybil's own sense of questioning and, and even alienation. Was Sybil's voice and perspective there for you from the start? And did you draw on any particular examples of voice in work that you admire? Mm. Yeah, her voice, her voice was there from the start. There was so much that influenced it, say, I, I know I spent a lot of my earliest sort of coming of age as a writer reading a different mixture of 
books where I loved, I loved, say, Rachel Cusk and Miriam Toes and um, Marguerite Dura and uh, Sheila Hetty, uh, this sort of dislocated female narrator trying to make sense of the world. Uh, at the same time, I also really was drawn to say a more a narrator that is is a bit say a newer kid on the block maybe kids of immigrant narrators who are a little more like female narrators who are a little more blasphemous and uh unruly say jade sharma or jenny zhang and i wanted i wanted the the two of them to collide in a way um Oh yeah, I feel I feel the like heady and cusk and and the Jenny Zhang here yeah. very much. Yeah. I and I yeah, and that's I, I guess and that is a voice is always where does a writer's voice come from and is it can it be changeable? I always think about that and I feel like voice is something that can be manufactured and changed based on a character, right? but there's always going to be an essential element of the way you see the world and what you see in the world, but more importantly, what you consider to be music in language, I think is what will always define whatever voice as a writer you ultimately need to speak in for the story that you're telling. And in this story, I feel like like this narrator's voice had to, had to be had to continue to sort of both dislocate and look for emotion wherever it could. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sybil's intellect is seemingly in constant tension with the way her body reacts to the world. Mm -hmm. In in this way, her got her body becomes its own form of narration. That disjunct between body and mind exists for all of us, and it's something that we constantly as humans have to reckon with the story that happens inside of us and the story that happens external to us. But how did you work on making them competing narratives in Sybil's life? That's really interesting. Yeah, I feel like it makes me think of just talk thinking about, say, first person versus third person, right? Um on a craft level, I always think about how how when you're in the first person, there's a big challenge to say, uh, show the narrator from the outside mm -hmm. um, and show their body from the outside, right? Yeah. Um, and in this book, it was really, really fascinating to play with. I had to use the women around Sibel to show what she, say, looked like, right? Mm. Um, she had such a, a, a say bodily presence that may or may not match what's going on in her head, which is an entire world of a world that she can't shut off. And I wanted to say there were so many different ways to do that on a craft level, using those other women, but also using her sister, Alara, who is is rapidly losing weight and has mm -hmm. eating disorder and is holding the grief and uh, every intergenerational thing in her body in such a different way than Sibel is, who is also not only not only feels sick, but is also essentially binge eating all summer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's so it's so fascinating. There was such a there was such a cool way of looking at all these different 
women and how they were looking at one another and defining themselves against each other. Makes so much sense, the the body exhibiting the means with which grief is is working itself through. Mm-hmm. Sybil's father dies from a heart attack while making tea in the kitchen. And this is an enormous burden of guilt and loss. And this burden both draws Sybil back to to Turkey and keeps her from properly mourning his complicated death. Mm-hmm. Her father, in many ways, stands in for her relationship to her broader family and even to her country. The second half of the novel will delve into family secrets and her father's history. Can you speak to the ways that that complicated family histories and complicated national histories intertwine in the novel? I love this question, and I think uh, it is so, say, essential to an understanding of Turkish history, which I believe is Turkish history is very fraught. As we were talking about in the beginning, just for example, when the Turkish Republic was established, they changed the language from Ottoman Arabic to the Romanized alphabet, essentially stripping people of their ability to read, right? Um, Which is such an just a jaw-dropping historical story. Yeah, right. And yeah, the 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 his Turkish history is full of just buried information that um, the state has, has buried, uh, denied Armenian genocide, um, continued say, uh, violence against the Kurds. There's so much that cannot be discussed in Turkish history and that people and my own family grew up going to school, not learning the correct stuff. Right. And I think the, the, that is not without its, um, that breeds a lot of sort of uh, horror in a family that then gets passed down. Um, And I really wanted, say, her, Sibel's father and what she feels about her father and the family secret that comes out is so rooted in a in a structure of a family that has to in, exist within a nation that has to follow certain rules where citizens have to follow certain rules right um and so when she finds out that that structure of the family is not what it actually seemed and the intense measures that were taken to say correct the family right to say not make one of the women queer in that time period when she was right to make sure that the the baby was was right i i guess i won't go into all that but anyway (laughs) um, (laughs) i I, yeah anyway there's there's a lot that is not that say this nation state is not allowing to happen that that sibel confronts right Mm -hmm. um and in terms of say I I really thought about this in terms of the form and structure of the novel, too, um, where just as the family structure turns out to be, quote unquote, broken, I wanted the form of the novel to be too, right, to have to have the past bubble up and like almost as if it is throw up or bile, right? to bubble up and break the present. So the I, I think a question I have picks up on that, and that's that 
for Sybil, some of the things that are unsettling her humors are the ghosts of generational trauma, of national mm -hmm. trauma, that she feels in a kind of deep well of history in her bodily memory. Yeah. Sybil hears stories of torture and murder and violence and anger and abandonment. Mm -hmm. And one of the sites of the traumas are the protests in Gezi, is it Gezi Park? Is yeah. Gezi uh, yeah. Park that were crushed by the government. Thousands were injured, protesting a variety of things, but the loss of, of certain secular rights being principal among them. Can you talk about how Sybil, Sybil experiences generational trauma and how you think literature might contribute to addressing that trauma? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I think she experiences it in a particularly, say, insider, outsider way, because she's also, she's not just Turkish, she's American. Um, and so she gets to see her family's Turkish trauma from a different perspective, right? She gets to, when you are from the outside looking at something, you don't see it correctly, right? You see it with a gaze, um, especially a Western gaze, which can be harmful, but she has access to the exact trauma as well because it is her family and because she is still Turkish. And I think her generational trauma is one that by spending in Turkey, she has to confront. It's almost a second coming of age in that way. Um, I think I think in general with generational trauma, um, one confronts it constantly and one buries it constantly. Uh, um, interesting. Yeah, and one is forced to reckon with it constantly or rarely, right? And I think in the novel, I think all novels are inherently political, and all novels inherently deal with with this kind of trauma and and weight of the past. I I always think about Orhan Pamuk's novel Snow and the history of kind of a lot of novels that deal with, say, an identity like a Turkish identity, right? Where you can't just say that the Armenian genocide happened in the book. You have to sort of put it in a coded manner, right? Mm -hmm. um, or in Orhan Pamuk's Snow, he he doesn't, you know, he doesn't use those words in the book. He, of course not. He can't, but also that would then be propaganda that might make the the art a different thing, right? But he constantly in that book mentions the homes that Armenians built that are now standing like mausoleums, right? Uh, yeah. And I, I think... I honestly think that so many novels are those exact, say, city structures that are standing like mausoleums. I wanted my narrator... Now you sound like Faulkner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> um, but yeah, I really I really do believe that, yeah, since the novel is an inherently political piece of art, um, the things within it are, are holding more than they... are holding more than the living, Right. And I wanted this narrator too. She moves through Istanbul aware of that weight um, and the weight of the many taboos that have oppressed oppressed people who have lived in Istanbul over all the generations. Um, 
and she has both an access and a freedom and is confined to that same curse of carrying it. The I, lest I, I I make the audience think that this is an unbearably serious book, <laughs> um, which you know it certainly is serious and thoughtful, but it is also full of wit and humor, mm-hmm. often in really surprising moments. And one of my favorite of those scenes is when Cooper and Sibel go to the bodies exhibit, which take real human bodies and display them preserved but in lifelike action. And I wonder if you'd read a bit from that section. Yes, I would love to. Yes, that is a funny section. There is there is humor in the book. <laughs> <laughs> in the exhibit, the text on the walls introducing the gallery apologized for itself. We know this may be strange, the curators wrote on a white wall, but you can learn a lot from the mysteries of the body. For some reason, they used a glittering pink color for the text. I translate the more obscure Turkish for Cooper, In the first room, more than 50 skulls are tacked to the wall. It is not clear who these skulls belong to, but most died from smoking, or, the four humors would say, black bile. I explained to Cooper that black bile makes a person brood, gloom, and withdraw, but black bile also has the power to thicken blood, allowing it to clot. Those with an excess of black bile can repair their bodies with impressive speed and minimal scar tissue. Mozart was diagnosed with rheumatic fever, which was thought to be caused by excess black bile in his brain. Academics passionately debate whether the scandalous rumor is true, that Mozart really died from an infection caused by the bloodletting procedure meant to cure him. George Washington, too, woke up one morning with a sore throat, and after his doctor drained numerous pints of his blood in one day, died. Then we see the bodies themselves, preserved in a process called plastination, where scientists replace bodily fluids and fat with liquid plastic, later hardened, molded, and posed into lifelike forms. Some of the bodies are so well-preserved in orange tendons and skin, I find myself suddenly looking at a sculpture. Don't you think, I say to Cooper, that these seem so real that they're like sculptures? He looks into a pair of glass eyes, but sculptures are the unreal, he says. This, this is the real thing. Cooper begins to debate what is real and not real, pointing at body parts, limbs, lips, vulvas. The necks have so many dried vessels and tendons, a web of orange and white strands like fresh prosciutto. Cooper said this, the fresh prosciutto thing. He has not eaten pig all summer, so he's confusing what is dried and what is fresh. I also miss eating pigs. Mortadella is my favorite pork product after hot dogs. Prosciutto is dry cured after all, Cooper points out, rubbed with salt, then preserved. This is about what we can learn, I say. This is not about prosciutto. I'm just saying these guys are preserved with plastic, not salt. Doesn't plastic seem unnatural? This is about medicine, I say. It's about how doctors learned what to do to make us live longer lives. Look, I say, here's a man who died of excessive alcohol consumption. Here's a man whose knee replacement got infected. Here is a smoker. I shut up. The late smoker looks back at me with a stern, dried up face. Thank you. That was really wonderful to hear. And it was hard to keep myself from laughing. Uh, (laughs) The prosciutto part, just, I I don't know, it tickles me every time. Um, It's this, both this sense of uh, the viscerality of everything that they're looking at, bodies sort of inside out, bodies uh, preserved, but also supposed to 
you know, bear lifelike appearance. And prosciutto is this preserved meat of this of this pig. And the fact that, that you've brought them together here in this exhibit and they're arguing about what what counts as real and what doesn't is really funny. It's also grim and it's and it's very much macabre in a way that those skulls are memento moris for the people coming to the exhibit, but very specifically for Sybil, who is mm-hmm. who's trying to give up smoking or is told anyway that she should give up smoking. So why is the macabre a good site for humor for you? And, and what was it like to kind of draw out the humor from this scene um yeah that's that's so interesting it is it is quite it is quite macabre and I think um anytime I'm I make a lot of jokes I guess in my everyday life and (laughs) I need to laugh a lot and I often find most things absurd right uh and the fact of the matter is that such an exhibit horrifies me and genuinely scares me, right? And <laughs> so I need them to walk through it and see the absurdity of it, right? Hmm. Um, and even the absurdity, the absurdity of, say, putting sort of human beings in a museum like this is, mm-hmm. yeah, it is, it is pretty funny um, and it is educational, I remember when this, I think it's the same exhibit, they were like yeah. Bodies Alive or something uh-huh. came came to Philadelphia and I yes. and I went to it and I, I I really was repulsed by it. Yeah, yeah. No, it is repulsive. It's repulsive. And yeah, there's something about in general, I feel like I always write about the body with a lot of I'm I'm very interested in the body, but I am I am genuinely horrified by, say, um, an incision to the body, you know, like what is underneath the body both fascinates me and terrifies me. I am afraid of that. Yeah. Uh, And I think I definitely that definitely is incorporated in this character, say, desire to both be a doctor and not want to do it for so many different reasons. Yeah, I I didn't go to the fascination exhibit where I your your best to skip it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I went to the Muter Museum in uh, Philadelphia, and that's where this was inspired from. And then I learned about fascination. Yeah, and the Muter Museum. Um, my sister and my brother are both doctors, and I am the black sheep writer. And I went with the three of them. You must be such a disappointment. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I went with the three of them and they were just nerding out about all these sort of, I think the museum is a museum of death. I forget what the exact translation is, but it's something like that. Yeah, Very yeah. Bob place. And they were just obsessed with the museum. They were, they were like, little school children being like oh my god look at this look at this look at this and i was just in a corner like staring at the skulls writing in my notes app (laughs) 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 and then i left early because i was disturbed (laughs) well i mean you you clearly chose the right career based on your reaction to it (laughs) yeah yeah the skulls inspired me I, so Sybil's boyfriend Cooper is such an interesting character, and mm-hmm. uh, she is 
Sybil is both intrigued and somewhat dismayed at the ease with which he finds connection or seems to find connection with her family and friends. Mm -hmm. At times, he seems closer to her grandmother than she is, despite knowing only limited Turkish. Can you talk about the ways in which the Four Humors complicates the notion of feeling at home in one's country and playing with the nuanced ways in which we are connected to a place while feeling distant from it and how Cooper sort of really kind of sets that alight in Sibel. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, um, I I mean, it, it most of that feeling, that complicated feeling is is just one that I simply have uh, lived with and carried my whole life, right? The feeling of um, being so feeling alien at some, in some regard in America and going to your motherland and thinking you're going to be, it's sudden, you're going to suddenly feel so at home, but you're othered there too. You don't speak it properly. Um, you don't have the, as many memories there, but your whole family is there. You look around and suddenly for the first time, every single person looks just like you. Uh, so those feelings I wanted, I came from a, just a very, um, a place within me with Cooper. Cooper is one of those perfect, uh, craft wise. He's this perfect, uh, lens or, or forces, a, the exact lens that I wanted for Sibel in that I didn't, I always think about say who I'm writing for and the gaze, right? I didn't, I didn't want this book to be a book that explained Turkishness in a way that would further other it, right? I didn't want to explain why certain things were happening that related to say Turkish culture. Having Cooper there, first of all, Sibal being American and experienced and being able to say, and being interested in analyzing the differences between Turkishness and Americanness was a good way to say, not cater to that gaze, but explain the things that I found funny about the mm -hmm. in-betweenness, right? And Cooper further was an interesting way to talk about the exact Western gaze and kind of the complicated line between um, fetishizing uh, and exotifying a place and genuinely loving it, right? Mm -hmm. And so he almost, in a way where I hope did not say he wasn't just a gaze or a perspective, he almost like he, he effectively made that happen so well, I think. That Mm -hmm. he, he does that really well. And he does, he's his own character as well. He mm -hmm. feels, he feels fully fleshed, but he, he certainly offers us that, uh, that different kind of vision of a place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm very interested in the role that, uh, Turkish soap operas play mm -hmm. in part because this is the second novel I've read in, in recent weeks, uh, that has Turkish soap operas playing a you know, an interesting cultural background role. Have you read yeah. Nazla Kocha's The Applicant? Yes, I love I love Nazla's book so much. It's yeah. it's a really wonderful book. Um, and I found your books are very different, but I, I loved that the Turkish soap opera operates as a kind of counter narrative to what's mm -hmm. going on in contemporary Turkey. Yeah. And it is a romanticized um a vision of history and the present and and I wonder why you wanted it there and 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 what it's doing for you in the novel. 
Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. I can talk endlessly about, about Turkish soap operas. Um, <laughs> I figured you could based on right? the way they're described. They're absolutely, I mean, they're absolutely booming in Turkey, the Middle East and South America, I believe. Oh, um, fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, I've always thought, talk about absurdity. It's insane how much the stories in soap operas do not in any way at all excavate the actual drama in Turkish history, right? <laughs> um, and they don't actually say, they're, and they're so far behind catching up to any drama. And instead, they use the same tired tropes. They're not telling the truth, um, which makes me really angry, actually, right? And I, I actually think about it in terms of say, what is what is kind of expected, again, talking about, say, the traditional family structure is something that is really at this novel's core. And I wanted the traditional family structure to almost mimic, say, what a soap opera is supposed to be, right? But what happens when the soap opera is sort of like punctured and actually the truth comes out of the soap opera? Yeah, it's it's so funny. These these soap operas and like I've watched a lot of them always with my mom and my grandma and the things they say and they'll kind of complain about them too being like oh they'd never do this they'd never show this but they don't talk about those things either mm. in their own lives so it's funny everyone's just using this um commonly accepted form of entertainment to hide a lot of things uh, I that, I love that description of it, and I I think that's the same with American soap operas. Oh yeah, uh, I I wasn't very versed in say like The Bachelor. I only started watching it <laughs> a little recently with like a group of friends. I watched like maybe one or two seasons. Blows my mind. It's not even entertainment. It's it's literally propaganda to continue continue to reemphasize social norms that have oh, been yeah. outdated for decades but yeah, if they existed at all if they existed but, yeah. at all yeah it's like it and and it's so forceful and it's not even real right like you learn about the you learn about um and i and yeah this is more reality tv but still you learn about what's going on behind the scenes and it's not even real mm, no no um, they are a, a, an incredible sounding board for thinking about what the culture wants to hide, though. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what they they do so well in in the four humors. Yeah, there's not even there's barely a single I don't think I could be wrong, but I haven't heard of a single, say, queer character in Turkish soap operas. Or oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Well, that that says a lot right there. Yeah, um, and there's and there's say like they love their inter sort of like they love um a Romeo and Juliet story, a story about say like uh different people from different classes falling in love and the family's not allowing it. Yeah, that's it. Hmm. <laughs> Well, yeah. I'm going to have to watch some just so because I've now read two novels that are um, have real connections to them. So I think I'm going yeah. to have to do some viewing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> before I let you go, I'd love to learn a little bit about what you're reading and loving right now. And if you have any recommendations for our listeners. Yes, definitely. And um, I just read this book called The House of Doors, which is coming out this week, I believe, by Tan Tuan Eng. And it's set in 1920s colonial Malaysia and it is so fascinating and it actually 
has to do with a lot of what we've just been talking about, about what is what society allows and what society does not allow about sort of immense sexual repression and the even uh, legal consequences of, say, an affair. It's so, 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 so good. And yeah, it was the kind of book that I started at, say, like 5 p.m. And I didn't put it down until like 12 a.m. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And I read it into the night. It just is very transporting. Yeah, it was it was really, really quite, quite good. Great recommendation. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it came out this week. And then I've also I've also just started Carnality by Lena Wolf, which I really love. It's it's oh, very, is that the Swedish uh, writer. Yeah. yeah so good it's very surprising and it constantly and it's very darkly funny and very 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 absurd and i love any any book whenever a a narrative voice is say absurd i love it so much because it just like lightly touches on these things that are so horrifying and it continues <laughs> blazing on and it makes you really question the voice itself makes you question sort of good and bad in morality. It's really good. Uh, there's sort she of a wrote um, that uh, a book titled Brett Easton Ellis some, something. Uh, oh, and, and other dogs, Brett oh. Easton Ellis and other dogs, which, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is, so great and similar to, in the way you're describing that sort of ironic, sarcastic voice. She's so good. She's so good. Yeah. Very funny, too. Mm -hmm. makes, you, makes you sort of like look up and see things differently. And then I'm also reading, well, I just finished rereading again, Aria Aber's collection of poetry, Hard Damage, which I really love. I, I think it's such a beautiful collection. Um, it is really about, say, displacement and being a refugee and an immigrant or the things that that intergenerational trauma um, and a very real trauma that continues in everyday life and who is sort of complicit in that. Yeah, it's a really good, really great collection. I'm very happy to have some poetry recommended as well. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I want to recommend to my audience that they pick up The Four Humors. I really loved the book. I feel like it has so much to say to not just the immigrant experience, but to our experience of the dissonance we have between our family histories, our national histories, and the way we feel about ourselves. And I hope that lots of people will read it. And it's been such a pleasure getting to talk to you about it, Mina. It's been so lovely talking to you too. Yeah. Very Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to Mina Sechkin for a wonderful conversation about her novel, The Four Humors, available now from Catapult Books. You can find links to purchase The Four Humors and all of Mina's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs>